in. The other day I was um, in Walmart a couple days after Christmas, and I was trying to uh, snag some of those post-Christmas sales. You know what I'm saying? Just the Christmas stuff that's marked down, it's perfectly good. It's just it's packaged in all that Christmas marketing. <clears throat> and um, the shelves were pretty stripped bare, to be quite honest with you, um, except for those categories that just didn't quite make it well. So if you're the buyer for Walmart for seasonal items for Christmas season, um, God bless you. You didn't miss the mark. Thank you for keeping our shelves inventoried properly. Um, but... Um, but what was interesting is as I was sitting there and as I was trying to find my Christmas deal, I rounded the corner and to my be- bewilderment, there was, there was pallets stacked of Valentine's Day paraphernalia. And again, if you work at Walmart, thank you for keeping our shelves stocked properly. But to be quite honest with you, there was a little part of my soul that died a little bit whenever I saw that Valentine's Day paraphernalia standing in the Christmas aisle. You see, there's something about our society that knows how to anticipate an event, but rarely do we know how to sustain an event. Before we move on from Christmas and the message of Christmas, could we maybe look one more time at what Christmas has taught us so that we can carry it into the new year. You see, Advent was the season from roughly the end of November until Christmas Day. And in many churches around the world, the Eastern Orthodox Church, 12% of our Christian brothers and sisters around the world, they actually don't celebrate Christmas until January the, the, the 5th. And this season between December the 25th and January the 5th on the liturgical calendar is called Christmastide. It's where we get the 12 days of Christmas. On the 12th day of Christmas. I'm not going to sing the song. But there was this strategic moment on the church calendar where we would pause for 12 days after all of the festivities, after all of the celebration, And we wouldn't rush on to the next thing, but we would pause and allow the impact, the message, the truth of Christmas to settle so deeply in our hearts that whenever we entered into the next year, we carried with us the light that had just come. Perhaps it's because all the talk around Christmas, around Christ's arrival in the human flesh, perhaps it's, it sounds so inspiring and beautiful, but if we were, again, if we were to be really honest with one another, we go about our lives and then we're faced again with the stark reality of the present darkness. You see, during Christmas we observe Christ's arrival But we still flip on the news and we hear wars and rumors of wars. You see, during Christmas, we reflect on Christ's coming, but then the stock market graph seems to be an accurate indicator of our daily mood. You see, during Christmas, we acknowledge that Christ has come, but our lives still, if we're really honest with ourselves, feel at times inconsequential 
Our circumstances seem insurmountable, and our future still seems hopeless. Perhaps we've moved on from Christmas a little too quickly. Perhaps the shelves of our spirituality have been restocked too quickly with meaningless activity and mind-numbing escapes from reality. Perhaps we need to take one more look at the Christmas narrative and consider not just the fact that Christ came, because that's beautiful and it's true, but why he came, what he chose to enter into, and how his coming offers something of substance to us, his church. Perhaps we could learn from the way that Jesus didn't simply show up and leave, but rather he chose to dwell among. And in his dwelling, he sets in motion the slow, progressive work of transformation from the inside out. You see, today we'll be reading from Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23, if you want to get your Bibles out. But I, li- I like to do something before we jump into the text. Let's, t- let's take a little moment and explore some context so we know where we're at in the Christmas narrative. You see, Jesus was just born to Mary and Joseph in Bethlehem. Can, can you imagine the excitement? Can you imagine the wonder? Can you imagine the overwhelmed feeling that they felt as they brought this new baby boy into the world? Can you imagine... The, the wise men from the east coming and showering this little child with gifts, even though they had received this prophetic message from angels, could it be that they were still pondering in their hearts what this all could mean? And the wonder and the excitement was immediately interrupted by a madman named Herod, insistent upon consolidating his power through an act of violence. In the text today, we see that Joseph was interrupted in a dream, that he encountered an angel in a dream, and this angel spoke something to him. He said, Joseph, I know you're going through one of the most overwhelming, exciting moments of your life. Your your, your newborn baby has come into the world, but I want you to know that unless you leave immediately, your child is at risk of being murdered. This is the tension of the Christmas narrative, isn't it? It's good news for all people, but also it's the stark reality of the present darkness. Isn't this the story of our life? Isn't this the story of our everyday existence? The deep joys of waking up and tasting that cup of coffee in the morning, that your favorite blend that you just got for Christmas, but then stepping into your job and facing the reality that your boss didn't get a good night's sleep. The reality that your children can bring you the deepest amount of joy in one breath, and then in the next moment, they have you pulling their hair out. This is the beauty of the Christmas message, right? And this is the sustaining grace that the Christmas message gives to us. It's that God did not avoid the mess, but that God enters into the mess And as he enters into the mess, he begins the slow transformative work of transforming us and our world from the inside out. Oh, church, if we could understand, if we could understand what we have been given in Christ's coming. 
oh, if we could understand it. No, your problems aren't going to go away. And if someone has told you that, I'm sorry. No, 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 church. Christ has entered into the world so that he could enter into your world, so that you could enter into someone's world and transform it from the inside out. But I'm distracted away from the Christmas narrative. So let's get back to Matthew chapter 2, verse 13 through 23. If you're willing and able, would you please stand for the reading of God's word this morning? Verse 13. If you're following along, I'll be in in the New Living Translation. After the wise men were gone, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream. Get up! Flee to Egypt with the child and his mother, the angel said. Stay there until I tell you to return because Herod is going to search for the child to kill him. Happy New Year. (laughs) That night, Joseph left for Egypt and the child and Mary, his mother, and they stayed there until Herod's death. This fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet, I called my son out of Egypt. Herod was furious. This is what mad men do. They go into fits of rage They get mad that their ego's been destroyed. And then they they resort to violence in order to to try to make things right. It says he was furious, and when he realized that the wise men had outwitted him, he sent soldiers to kill all the boys in and around Bethlehem who were two years old and and under, based upon the wise men's report of the star's first appearance. Herod's brutal action fulfilled what God had spoken through the prophet Jeremiah. A cry was heard in Ramah. Weeping in great mourning, Rachel weeps for her children, refusing to be comforted, for they are dead. When Herod died, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt. Get up. Can everybody say, get up? The angel said, take the child and his mother back to the land of, of Israel, because those who were trying to kill the child are dead. So Joseph got up, returned to the land of Israel with Jesus and his mother, but when he learned that the new, the new ruler of Judea was Herod's son, Archelaus, he was afraid to go there. Then after being warned in a dream, he left for the region of Galilee. So the family went and lived in a town called Nazareth. And this fulfilled what the prophets had said. He will be called a Nazarene. May we have ears to hear what the Spirit of Christ is saying to the world. And may God have his blessing to our reading of his word. You may be seated. You see, the exuberant joy of Christ's arrival is immediately ambushed by the evil and the darkness of the present age. An innocent child born into the darkness of an age marked by selfish power, greed, and manipulation. This is life, though, isn't it? Feelings of excitement and joy can immediately be replaced by feelings of worry and sadness. The ambivalence of the Christmas season has a way of heightening our emotions. Perhaps it's the family gathering or the downtime of the holidays or the memories of days gone by. Something about Christmas makes us keenly aware of both the height of our wins and the depth of our losses. Both the richness of our abundance and the poverty of our lack. Both our joy and our pain. Today's text reminds us Christ's arrival marks a new light dawning in the earth. Just as night gives way to dawn and the death of winter gives way to the new life of spring, so Christ's arrival sets in motion an inevitable march toward newness, renewal, and hope. 
This emergence often doesn't go at the speed or the intensity that we'd like it for it to, but that doesn't diminish the fact that it's actually happening. Nevertheless, as we wait for its ultimate consummation, we are left in the hereness. The now but not yet. The tension of knowing what lies ahead, yet living in the reality of the mundaneness and the ordinariness of everyday life. So what do we do with that, church? What do we do with the hereness? How do we live in the tension of the joy and the light of Christ's arrival and the the despair and darkness of our present reality? In other words, how do we sustain the meaning of Christmas throughout the coming year in a world that is riddled in darkness? Well, let's consider a few things from today's text that I believe will give us hope in the midst of the tension. Again, Joseph and Mary just had a baby boy. They're they're living in Bethlehem. They're starting to make plans, as we all do as young parents, trying to figure out what's next. But then all of a sudden, Joseph's interrupted by a dream. You could say even a nightmare. And in this nightmare, Joseph learns that King Herod the king of Judea, delegated authority of the Roman Empire, had just put a bounty on the head of their son. You see, this is the the type of kingdom and the value system of a kingdom that is more concerned about consolidating power through acts of violence than consummating a new way of power through acts of vulnerability. You see, Jesus actually invites us to live from a better kingdom. Christ's arrival commences a confrontation between the kingdom of God, which I'll describe in oversimplified terms as righteousness, peace, and joy in the spirit, and earthly kingdoms, which I'll I'll oversimplify and characterize as kingdoms marked by greed, lust, and power in an unholy ego. And this confrontation between the kingdoms of the world and, the, and, and God's kingdom is still being waged by, our, by the church today. You see, while the kingdoms of this present age are marked by that violence, greed, and power lust, Christ's arrival initiates an emerging kingdom marked by humility, justice, peace, and mercy. I think Matthew, whenever he was writing the Christmas narrative, he wanted us to see the contrast between these two kingdoms. He wanted us to see that, wow, like the, the Roman Empire was pretty brutal, that Herod was willing to do whatever it, whatever it means to, to sorry, how, how's the phrase go? To abide by whatever means necessary, thank you, in order to see his will be executed, his power to be consolidated. But in the same moment, we see God with a counter-narrative, with a subversive narrative coming in in the same breath and saying, no, 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 this is not how the world that I created was meant to operate. The world was not meant to be built upon consolidation of power through violence. The, The world was meant to be built upon humility, vulnerability, entering into the mess and 
beginning to transform something from the inside out. There's something different about the substance of the kingdom of God that is fundamentally different than the kingdoms of this earth. And Matthew, the writer of the gospel, wants us to see this comparison in this moment because he doesn't want us to lose hope. You see, we we can wake up every day and whenever we become children of God, it says that we've been transferred from the kingdom of darkness into the kingdom of light. And we get to wake up every day and choose from which kingdom we will live. Let me tell you about the tale of the laundry room grasshopper. The other day, I was sitting minding my own business in the living room when all of a sudden... A shriek, a blood-curdling shriek, (laughs) came from the laundry room. And lo and behold, my daughter was in the laundry room with my wife, and all of a sudden, she began to scream at the same level of intensity that my wife did. And from the laundry room came this, Grant, come kill it! Grant, come kill it! I'm like, what could this be? What could this be? So I walk inside the laundry room. My wife, my daughter were standing in terror and there in the corner, hopping innocently, (laughs) was a little grasshopper. Now, for those of you who grew up in the uh, the city and not in the country, okay, cool, I'll give you that. But us country folk, no. There ain't nothing, the grasshopper's harmless, guys. It It wasn't gonna hurt a fly. So I reach down with my hand, I get it, I pick it up, I take it outside. Now, what's the point of this story, me telling you about a grasshopper in a laundry room? You see, fear leads to violence. (laughs) Point number two. Fear is contagious. My little daughter, she didn't know what a grasshopper could do. But through her mama's eyes, this grasshopper could kill us all. (laughs) And the father, coming in the spirit of peace, came and grabbed this little grasshopper and led it on a journey of liberation all the way out the door. It matters the kingdom we live from. Because the kingdom we live from dictates how we react to the world around us. The story doesn't end there though, right? The angel speaks to Joseph. He says, get up. Get up. You can't stay here. Complacency or delayed obedience will get you and your family killed. I need you to pack your mule, and I need you to take your family on a detour from Bethlehem all the way down to Egypt. Now we read this story, and it's just a verse. It's just a couple inches on our page. This was a 300-mile journey into a foreign country. They had no idea where they were going. They had no idea. All they, all they knew was that they had a couple gifts from some wise men, that would fund the journey, and that whenever, whenever he received a, a message from an angel, that 
he, he, he had resolve in his heart that he was going to be obedient and do it. And that leads me to my second point. Jesus leads us through a better exodus. So not only do we have a better kingdom, but Jesus leads us on a better exodus. If you look back in verse 15, it says, This journey fulfilled what the Lord had spoken through the prophet. I called my son out of Egypt. You see, Jesus models for us what true deliverance actually looks like. In other words, Matthew, the the writer of this gospel, wants us to see that Jesus is the perfected Moses. Said in another way, Moses, because of his sin, was unable to lead his people all the way to complete deliverance. But Jesus comes to finalize what Moses couldn't complete. While, while Israel's exodus was marked by disobedience, disbelief, compromise, and faithlessness, Jesus' exodus is, sub, is subsequently marked by humble submission, trust, obedience, and faithfulness. You see, whenever we read the narrative of the Exodus in the Old Testament, we don't realize, because of our, maybe our geography, that it could have been completed in 40 days or under. But it turned into a 40-year wandering. Why? Because of disobedience, faithlessness, a lack of trust. God called them stiff-necked people. Now, before we throw shade on the Israelites... Could it be that I, I won't throw you, that I wake up every day in my own disobedience, in my own lack of trust, turn a 40-day journey into a 40-year wandering? But Jesus in this picture, Matthew wants us to see, oh, Jesus is the better Moses. Jesus is the perfected Moses. What the law couldn't do Jesus came to complete. The law couldn't set us free. No, 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 the law couldn't set us free. The law only reminds us of the fact that we're not good enough. But Jesus comes and he provides a better exodus. Jesus comes and he says, because you are wallowing in your mess, I'm gonna come in and I'm gonna start the slow, progressive work of transformation from the inside out. This is the gospel, folks. The gospel is not that we have to muster up our own strength and figure out how to get, of our, get out of our bondage. No, Matthew wants us to see, church, that we can't do it in our own power and he provides a better exodus. That as we submit ourselves to him, as we are filled with the spirit and led by him, that we actually get to walk out a better exodus. One marked by humble submission and obedience and faith, trusting that the one who created our soul is the one that will sustain us and get us to where he's called us to go. That's a better exodus. But the story doesn't end there. After two or three years in Egypt, and again, I'm just, I'm, we blow over that. Man, they were there for two or three years, just waiting on the next message from an angel. But after two or three years in Egypt, the the angel said again to Joseph in a dream, get up. Get up. Get up. You can't stay here. I need you to pack your mule again and take your family to Nazareth. Another 300-mile journey on the back of a mule. The Savior of the world, Joseph and Mary, 
They began their 300-mile journey all the way back to Nazareth. Now, you may be wondering, like, what significance does Nazareth have? Well, well, let's explore a little bit about what Nazareth means. Nazareth was a despised place. Nazareth, whenever we read the, the, the narrative, it just really doesn't mean anything to us in our present day. But Nazareth would be like saying, like, I, I went to college at LSU. Sorry, if you're a graduate of Louisiana State University. Learn how to spell go. It's not E-A-U-X. It's just, just G. Anyway. <clears throat> Back to the text. Um, Nazareth was a despised place. It was a place where there was a Roman garrison. And people who lived in Nazareth were considered those who would capitulate to Roman power. They capitulated to the status quo. And whenever people spoke of Nazareth, they thought of people of Nazareth as being people who had betrayed their own. It was a tiny little village, and, it, and whenever we read it in the text, we, we, we miss it. But Jesus chooses to be identified as a Nazarene. Just as people willingly go to LSU and, 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 and say, I'm going to be a tiger, Jesus willingly took on that reproach. Okay, I'm done with LSU. Um, but what's interesting is whenever they went to Nazareth, this despised place, he then proceeds to embrace nearly 30 years of silence. The scripture doesn't really tell us much about what happened, but we can wonder. We can wonder the fact that Joseph was a carpenter and maybe his son was busy building tables for the local village. We can wonder what Jesus' daily rhythm looked like, but I think I can come to the conclusion that just like you and I have mundaneness and ordinariness throughout our lives, that Jesus was a participant in the mundane and in the ordinary. But what's interesting to me is the silence of the scripture and the mundaneness and the ordinariness of his 30 years was the way in which God chose to forge his human character. And I would like to offer you today, don't despise the ordinariness and the mundane of your, everyday, every, of your everyday life. Because it's in that place that God shapes us and forms us into the image of his son. God bless you as you, as you brush your teeth. God bless you as you lay down. God bless you as you, raise, as you rise. God bless you as you mow the lawn. God bless you as you pull the weeds. God bless you as you change the poopy diaper. God bless you as you do the laundry. God bless you as you do the dishes. God bless you as you go about your day. Why? Because it is in the mundaneness, it is in the ordinariness that God chose to refine his human character, to be used for a purpose, to redeem us and save humanity. And I would like to propose to you that it's in, the it's in the mundane, it's in the ordinary, it's in the everyday, it's the faithful and the little that prepares you for the much. Church, church, Jesus chose to be a, Na a Nazarene because it was a, a far-off place despised by many. 
And in living in that place and being able to identify as a Nazarene, you and I can now engage in the despised things, in the mundane things, in the ordinary things, the 30 years of waking up and doing the faithful thing, of waking up and doing the next right thing, of waking up and brushing our teeth. Why? Because Jesus did the same thing and he can identify with you in whatever you are going through. Church, Jesus was a Nazarene and Jesus summons us to follow a better king. So not only do we have a better kingdom, not only do we have a better exodus, but we have a better king. His kingly training was not filled with learning in elite educational institutions or rubbing shoulders in bastions of political power or being pampered in palaces of splendor. No, Jesus descended into the ordinary, into the mundane, into the unassuming. And it was there that his human character was forged to carry the weight of humanity and offer us, his people, a new way forward. (laughs) While the King Herods of the world are driven by an ego for conquest and control, King Jesus humbly arrives as a servant to compel humanity through sacrificial love and grace. Which king will we follow? Church, which king will we follow? Will we follow the Herods of the world that are grasping, motivated by ego, grasping for control, for conquest of the next thing? Or will we humbly follow the king who embraced 30 years of ordinariness to be forged, to be transformed, to be shaped so that he could identify with you and me? And then in humble submission, offered the world sacrificial love and grace. Yes, That's good news. We have a better king. We have a better king. You see, there's compound interest that accrues in the faithfulness of the mundane. God uses the ordinary to shape us. Oh, church, don't be blinded and discouraged by the kings and the kingdoms of this world grasping for power and affluence, all the while unable to deliver on their promises. May we follow the example of a humble servant king who's entrusted us with the work of establishing his kingdom here on the earth. And may we also learn from Joseph's example. If I can pull him, hit him out of the text for just a moment, out of the story. You see, Joseph went on a couple detours. And on his detours from Bethlehem to Egypt to Nazareth, Joseph learned something. And I want to offer it to us today. God develops devotion in the detours. God develops devotion in the detours. The things that we, seem, we, we deem, why in the world are you taking me here, Lord? Why are you taking me the long way around? Well, There was something about devotion to the word of the Lord coming and his immediate obedience that taught him devotion in the midst of the detour. God may have you on a detour right now. God may have you going away that you're like, where in the world am I going? Rather than lean away and say, God, where are you? Why don't you lean in and say, God, what are you doing? Because could it be that in the detour, God is wanting to teach you something? It was in the detour that God gave us a better kingdom, that God gave us a better exodus, that God gave us a better king. Don't despise the detours this upcoming year. 
It's preparing us for the good, hard work of completing what Christmas initiated. May God's word to Joseph through the angel be true to us as well. Get up. Some of you come in this building, you're ready to give up. The angel's saying to us, get up. It's not time to give up. It's time to get up. And I'm not trying to be insensitive. Oh, no, I I realize that some of us walked in here with darkness and despair hanging over our heads. I realize that some of us walked in here not knowing what to do, where to turn, or what was going to happen. But my word to you this morning was the same thing that the angel said to Joseph nearly 2,000 years ago. Don't give up. Get up. Get up. Jesus offers us a better kingdom, a better exodus, and a better king. So we can get up and be about the work of Christmas as we begin this next year. Because the consequence of Christ's coming is the commissioning of his church. (laughs) Allow me to close this morning with a poem written by Reverend Howard Thurman. Howard Thurman was an African-American theologian in the early 1900s, and he was known as being the, one of the mentors of Reverend Martin Luther King Jr. And it was under his tutelage that Martin Luther King Jr. began to learn about the concepts of what Christ had taught about nonviolence and using that to bring about change in a society that was needing change. Let me offer you his poem, The Work of Christmas. When the song of the angels is stilled, when the star in the sky is gone, when the kings and the princes are home, when the shepherds are back with their flocks, the work of Christmas begins. To find the lost, to heal the broken to feed the hungry, to release the prisoner, to rebuild the nations, to bring peace among the people, and to make music in the heart. That's the work of Christmas, church. That's the work of Christmas. Oh, but pastor, my personal and present darkness is suffocating me. Let me again leave you with an encouragement. A better kingdom is emerging. A better exodus is possible. And a better king has assumed the throne. Let us live from that reality so that the work of Christmas can be made manifest throughout the coming year. Amen? Amen. Let us pray. Heavenly Father, I realize that there there are people in this place that walked in here and they are ready to give up. That they can't see past the darkness right in front of them. That the darkness we read about in the Christmas narrative, that the evil that was existing during the time of Christ is still perpetuated into our present day, and we feel it in our souls. And Father, I pray right now for all those who walked in this room ready to give up. And I pray, Father, that they would have the courage to receive the same word that the angel gave to Joseph 2,000 years ago. Don't give up. You may be having those suicidal thoughts. Don't give up. You may be having a a season of depression. Don't give up. You might be looking like you're on the brink of your marriage ending. Don't give up. Your best friend has left you. Don't give up. Why? Because God is with us. God is with us. So right now, Father, I pray that for all of us who are in this room, 
saints and sinners and everything in between, those of us who are, who are ready and on the brink of giving up, would we receive the word of the Lord? Would, you, would we get up and would we rise from that place? God, I pray strength for my brothers and sisters. I pray hope for my brothers and sisters. And it's not an empty hope. It's a hope rooted in the fact that a, that a little baby came 2,000 years ago. He lived a perfect, sinless life. And because of the grace that he extends to humanity, we can be empowered to live new lives. I pray that you would empower them, Father, with that same grace. And Father, I do realize that there are some people who've walked in this room curious. They don't know Jesus personally, but, they, but there's something in their soul right now drawing them to this strange, warm feeling within their heart. That is the Holy Spirit compelling you into a relationship with the one who created you. So Father, for all those in this place that want to give their life to Christ, it's my invitation to you, church. If there's anyone in this room that would like to enter into a relationship with Christ for the very first time, my invitation stands. You're welcome in the kingdom. Father, we welcome them. God, they acknowledge the fact that they've tried to do everything and it didn't work. But that God, with you, with you, all things are possible, that you can make the sinner new and that you can set them on a new path of grace, of hope, and of trust. If that's you this morning, if, if you're like, you know, Pastor, I, I want to give my life to Christ. I've never, I've never taken the, the, the moment to just say, you know what, I've tried it all and I want Jesus. Would you accept him this morning? If you're making that decision with you, you don't have to do this journey alone. In fact, there's a room full of people right here that would want nothing more than to put their arms around you and to say, I want to be there for you. I know all this talk about Jesus and his kingdom is very confusing and overwhelming, but there's something in my heart that's pulling me, is compelling me to love. I accept it. If that's you, Come and find someone. We have Bibles available for you here at the altar rails in the front. Come and find someone and let them know that you made a decision. And we would like to equip you on your journey of faith as you explore what it means to follow Jesus, this new king that's, that's here. So Lord, we trust you. We love you. And we say thank you. Empower us to complete the work of Christmas that was initiated nearly 2,000 years ago. And it's in Jesus' name that we pray all these things. And all God's people said.